um, I had books with stories um, about Jesus that my parents would read to me. And as I read these stories about Jesus, um, it was kind of fascinating when I think back about the pictures. The pictures of Jesus when I was a kid, they looked uh, something like this. Jesus always had a white robe. I don't know why he had a white robe, but he always had a white robe. The other thing about Jesus is he had long flowing brown locks of hair. Um, now, in my growing up years, uh, you weren't allowed to have long flowing blocks of hair, especially as a teenager. This was very difficult because I had to get my hair short, and I was told if I didn't keep my hair short, then I wasn't close to God. But Jesus got to have long hair. Somehow he was God in the flesh. I never quite figured that all out. Um, but the other thing about Jesus, he always had this red, thing, red sash across. That's the other thing he had. So I suppose if Jesus was in these pictures today, he would have a man bun or something in the back. That's what he would have today. Um, but these are the pictures I have when I think of my childhood and how I was introduced to Jesus uh, on these things called flannel graph. Um, you know, but the question we're asking today is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? You know, 2.2 billion people today claim to be followers of Jesus. If you Google the name Jesus, you'll find over 50,000 titles book titles with the name Jesus in those titles. But if you were to talk to people and ask them, who is Jesus? What would you hear? Well, here's a few things, a few people and what they said who Jesus is. Uh, Rollo May, who is an ex uh, existential psychologist, said this, Christ is the therapist for all humanity. That's who Jesus is. He's everybody's therapist. Here's another name. You might recognize this one, former communist leader of Cuba, Fidel Castro. I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me and the ideas of that extraordinary figure, Jesus Christ. So Fidel said, hey, he's just like me, just like me. That's what he's like. Here's another one for you, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, of course, Jesus is unique, but who is not unique? Socrates, Mohammed, Buddha, you and I are all unique. You know, Considered a world religious leader, a poet, leader in the um, Buddhist movement. Um, everybody's the same. Jesus said it's any different than any of us. He's all the same. Here's one more for you. How about, um, what does Pamela Anderson think of Jesus? Even though I think Christians are intolerant or boring, I still think Jesus is somewhat cool in a trendy sort of way. So Jesus is kind of trendy. So that's another way for you to view Jesus. But the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And as you think about that, and if someone were to ask you that question and you were to answer that, what would you say? Some of you might say, well, he was a good teacher, and there were things Jesus taught that were good and meaningful. Or uh, maybe you would say, he, he, um, he was a miracle worker. And some of you might say, he's the Savior of the world. But not only the question is, who is Jesus, but what did he do? And some might suggest, well, he's a good role model, like our students talked about, some of their leaders, a good role model. Or some might say, well, he taught the world to love. Some might say that. And some might say he gave his life to save the world. If you haven't been here with, this summer, with us this summer, our series is entitled, This I Believe. This I Believe. And we're asking these questions about what is it that we believe and as a framework, we're using this document called the Apostles' Creed, which is a document that was developed over 1,600 years ago by a group of Christ followers. And we would say they created some bullet points to help us remember our faith, to help us remember what is true about what we believe. They summarize it, if you will. And last week, we looked at this statement. And would you read it together with me? Let's say it all together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And if you weren't here with us last week, I'd encourage you to go online and, and listen to the message. And we talked about God being two things, two things. 
We talked about God being um, infinitely powerful. That's the maker of heaven and earth. And then we talked about God being intimately personal. That's the God who is our Father. He's our Father. And so this week we want to dive into the next phrase of the Apostles' Creed. But before we dive into that, I want to tell you a love story. A love story. And this love story goes back to the, to the previous, um, to, the 19, to the 1930s. And this love story centers around a guy by the name of uh, King Edward VIII. King Edward VIII. He was the ruling king, ruling monarch in the land of England. And he had fallen in love with a woman he wanted to marry, and her name was Wallace Simpson. There was a problem. There was a problem. Because when he went to Parliament and asked to marry this woman, Parliament said no. Anybody know why Parliament said no, he couldn't marry this woman? Anybody know? She was an American, right? And I think I heard someone say she was divorced, actually twice. Now, that's no longer the case for uh, the royals, but uh, she was an American, she had been divorced twice. So this put King Edward in a difficult situation because he wanted to, serve and rule, wanted to rule and serve, but he had a woman that he loved. And so when he brought this dilemma to Parliament, Parliament said to him that if you move forward with this marriage, we're all going to resign. We're all done. We're all done. An incredibly difficult decision to make. And what decision did he make? Well, he decided that he would abdicate his throne, move out of the country, and marry his one true love. And when he called to tell her of his decision, she tried to talk him out of it. She said, no, it's not worth giving up all of that just for me. And he said to her, he said this, he said, I am giving it all up, and if you still want to marry me then, that would be amazing and wonderful, but that's my decision, regardless of what you decide. And so the London Herald um, proceeded uh, to say, Duke of York, the new king, renal, uh, final and irrevocable, that he abdicated his throne. And if you go on and read the article, it said the king renounced his throne for love. But that wasn't the first time in human history that that happened. And it actually happened several thousand years before when Jesus did the exact same thing. He paid the ultimate price to send a life-changing message to the world, and that's what we want to talk about today. So the next phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we want to look at begins by saying this. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And so let's look at these words and what each one of these words stand for. This really represents the humanity of Jesus. So the, the first word there, I believe in Jesus, that was his given name by his parents. That's what his parents called him when he was a little guy running around. That's what his buddies called him. That's what the neighbors called him. That's what the grandparents called him. Jesus was his common name. But Christ was not his last name. The word Christ actually denotes his mission, his purpose, what he was here for. You see, the word Christ, it's a Greek term, and it means anointed one or Messiah. And it describes why Jesus was here. It goes on to say his only son. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later, describing Jesus as God's only son. In John 3.16, the writer John says this, that Jesus gave his one and only son. And then lastly, our Lord. And when someone's described as a Lord, they're viewed as master, as leader, as sovereign. And that's the place where we want to start this morning, is that Jesus was human. He was just like us. But he was different than us, as the next phrase goes on to say. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin Mary. And what this statement declares is that Jesus had no earthly father, no earthly father that was involved in his conception. You say, John, can you explain how this happened scientifically? I can't. I can't. 
But I also can't explain to you how Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, how he made the lame man walk, how he raised Lazarus from the dead. But those things all happened. His birth is described in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when it says, after he had uh, considered this, this is speaking of Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. They say, why is this so important? Why is this so important that Jesus um, didn't have an earthly father? Well, it's so important for a couple of reasons. The first is if Jesus was fully human, just like us, then he would not be able to pay for the sins of all of mankind. That I'll explain in just a minute. But if he was fully God, just showing up here on the earth, then he couldn't know and understand the struggles that each one of us goes through. You see, being born in the Spirit and not having a father enabled him to be fully God and not having the sin nature that gets passed down to every single one of us. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, Just as sin entered into the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to everyone, because what? We've all sinned. You see, we're not sinners because when you're a little baby and you cry and you stomp your feet and you say no and you say you want my own because you've sinned. We're a sinner because we're born into the human race. And that started with Adam. You see, Adam's choice to disobey God is passed along to every man, every woman, every child that is born. And because Jesus did not have an earthly father, that sin nature was not passed on to him, allowing him to be fully God. But he was not only fully 100% God, he was also fully 100% human. He was born into this world the same way every single one of us was born into this world. Likely with a crunched up face and very squishy, he was born into this world. He cried, he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, he was sad. He experienced all of those normal emotions as he was as he grew. Luke writes it this way, he said, The Lord Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But he was deity clothed in humanity. He was both. Not 50% to make one. He was 100% and 100%. He stepped out of heaven into life as we know it, being fully 100% God. An illustration of this is a woman by the name of Patricia Moore. Patricia Moore was a woman in the early 80s, fairly attractive woman, and she decided to, to be involved in this experiment. And so this experiment was one in which she wanted to understand, as a 32-year-old woman, what it was like to be an 85-year-old senior citizen in our country. And so she proceeded to pursue this experiment for three years before she wrote this book, Disguised, a true story, in which every week for three years she dressed herself up to look like this, and then proceeded to spend a full day in 100 different cities in 14 different states. She, she wrapped her fingers with cotton and then put on gloves so her fingers looked puffy. She put earplugs in her ear. She had um, things that she put in her back so she appeared to be hunched over. She put things around her legs. It would take her four hours to get fully um, clothed in such a way that she would be, appear to be a woman that was nearly 50 years older than she currently was. You say, why did she do that? What would cause someone to do that? What would cause them to do that? She took on the persona, the likeness, to discover what was it like to be someone 
who is 85 in the culture that we live in today. And that's literally what Jesus did. John writes about this in John 1.14 says, The Word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That, that word dwelling is the idea of pitching a tent. It's not the idea of coming and saying, Hi, how are you? And then leaving. He, he pitched His tent. He stayed for a while, for 33 years among us, being fully God and fully man. He experienced everything that we did. He was born the way we were born. He lived in a middle-class family. He ate. He worked. He struggled. He had siblings. He felt pain. He experienced all that we've experienced. And he suffered all that we have suffered. The writer of Hebrews writes about this when it says, For this reason he had to be made like them, speaking of Jesus, like us, fully human in every way, every imaginable way, in order that he might become merciful. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Say, so why did Jesus become fully man? Why did he step down into humanity? Why didn't God just come up with another plan? Well, I think one of the reasons is so that we would have someone that would know what it's like to struggle and to live in this world that we live in. I was talking to someone recently, we were having a conversation, they mentioned Judas, and they said, I think Jesus having a disciple that betrayed him was very intentional by God. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, because unless Jesus had someone who was close to him, who took advantage of that closeness and betrayed him, how would, we ever know, how would he ever know what it's like to experience that? Jesus hung on a cross the Bible says that God the Father turned his back on him. He was rejected, abandoned, alone. He suffered. He was betrayed by those that were closest to him. When you think about the struggles that you go through, and when I think about the struggles that I go through, there's not a single struggle. There's not a single wrestling, there's not a single pain, there's not a single heartache that Jesus does not understand, that he's not walked through, that he's not engaged in. And so we think about this phrase that says um, that Jesus was born of a virgin and that he lived on this earth. It's so that he would know what life was like for us. And this is further expanded in the next phrase when it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor in Israel during this time. Pontius Pilate had the power to decide if Jesus would live, if he would suffer, or he would die. He was in charge. He was in charge. And the story in John, as he recounts the incident, goes like this. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged, had him beaten. Beaten with a whip that had bits of glass and bone tied into it. Soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple. They mocked him um, and went up to him again and again and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him. Other places it says they spit upon him. They physically beat him and mistreated him. And then when he went to the leaders, Pilate came out and said to the Jews that had gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. He said to the religious community, the leaders there, he said, He's innocent. And what did they do? They turned on him, and they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. We don't have a king, just Caesar, the chief priest said. 
Pilate tried to wash his hands of it. He tried to say, it's not me. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm clear. I'm clean. But Pilate was the one guy who could make a difference. The one guy who could stop this. The one guy who could change all of this. And he chose to wash his hands and let the crowds take over and run with it. It's easy to look at Pilate, kind of point a finger, say, why didn't he step in? Why didn't he do something? Why didn't he interrupt that? But Pilate just listened to the voice of everybody else. He didn't want to rock the boat. He didn't want his situation to change. And how often do we find ourselves falling prey to the same thing? Not wanting to rock the boat. Not wanting to change the scenario. Let's just let it go. Let it go. And the result is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified and died and was buried. Crucifixion was the most painful way to die. It was an excruciating death. The word excruciating is a Latin term that, simple, that literally means out of the cross. I actually came up with a word to describe how painful and how horrible it was to suffer on a cross. It was illegal to punish a Roman citizen that way. It was so inhumane. Slaves, foreigners, criminals, they were the ones that got put to death this way. Not the Romans. The physical, the emotional suffering was intense. And he knew all this was coming. And then he was buried. No funeral. Everybody went in hiding. He was put into a borrowed tomb. And what Jesus did is he followed a path that's countercultural. He followed a path that is totally different. In our culture, we celebrate rags to riches stories. We celebrate rags to riches business leaders. We celebrate rags to riches athletes. We celebrate rags to riches musicians. We celebrate rags to riches politicians. But look at the pattern that Jesus followed, not rags to riches. Philippians chapter 2 Paul writes this, who being in the very nature of God, he's speaking of Jesus here, did not consider equality with God. He's equal with God. Jesus and God were the same. They were on equal standing. But he didn't take advantage of that. Wasn't used to his own advantage. What did he do? He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of servant. He was what? Made in the likeness just like we were. Instead of taking advantage of his position of being fully God, he took on a likeness just like us. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, what Jesus did is he followed God's direction. He stepped away from this position of equality with God. And he stepped into the human race and became just like us. He took on our nature. He became a servant. And he was not just like one of us. He followed that all the way to death on the cross. Why did he do it? Why did he give all of this up? John writes about it in a verse that we may all be very familiar with. Would you read it together with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John goes on to say in the next verse, For God did not send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but why? That the world, to save the world through him. You say, why did Jesus do this? 
Why did he follow the direction of the Father? Because it was the only plan that God had. It was a plan that he had to rescue all of eternity, to rescue all of mankind. But the problem is mankind doesn't know they need rescuing. Doesn't know they need rescuing. I heard a story that illustrates this just this past week. It was a story of a, of a mom who was out with her, uh, with her toddler and uh, she got home. And as she got home, uh, she, turned the, she, um, uh, she went to turn the car off. And as she turned the car off and started to get out of the car, she hit the lock button and hit the door and accidentally locked her toddler inside of the car. And in a panic, she called her husband and said, is there an extra car key? And he said, well, yeah, but and he looked at his key ring. And he said, I have the extra car key on, uh, the extra key on my ring. And she proceeded to tell him what happened. And he quickly put down what he was doing and made his way to get home. And as he got home and he got closer to home, he could, he could hear the sirens and he could hear the, the, um, saw the, the fire trucks coming. And as he got close to home, he saw that there were police officers and there were fire engines and there was emergency personnel and there was ambulances there. And as he pulled into the driveway, he saw that around his car there was a police officer at every single window with a jimmy stick trying to get in that, in that car and free up that toddler who was stuck inside this car. And as he walked up to the car, he said the most amazing thing was looking at his daughter's face who was sitting in the car seat. She was smiling, she was waving to all the police officers. She was having a grand old time with all the attention that she was getting, as you can imagine most toddlers might be. But she was completely oblivious to the potential danger and harm she could be in. Completely oblivious to the reality that if she would have stayed in that car unattended for several hours, especially if it was hot, it could do what? It could put her in a life-threatening situation. And as he walked up, all he had to do was click that remote, and she was able to be freed. But doesn't that so aptly describe the condition that we find ourselves in? That we find ourselves in, where we're oblivious to everything that's going around us. So in our mind, we're just kind of living life. We're enjoying life. Life is great. Life is grand. Life is good. I'm making good money. My family's doing great. I'm enjoying the summer. We got some vacation planned. Oblivious to everything that's going on around us. Because in our mind, especially as Westerners, we kind of view our entrance into heaven to be a scale. And as long as the good things outweigh the bad things, as long as I've done enough good and it's outweighed the bad and the scales are tipped in my favor, then I have a good chance that when I'm knocking on heaven's door, then I'm going to get in. But God says something very different. The prophet Isaiah puts it this way. He says, all of us have become like one who's unclean. And our righteous acts, our goodness, our good deeds... The things we do in the community, he said, they're like dirty rags. Dirty rags. Not even good rags that you got in a bin and you use when you need some. These are like rags that have been used up. And what do you do with the rag that's been used up? You do what? You throw out. Now, not everybody throws them out. Some of them save the dirty rags. But most of the time, when they're used up, you throw them out. What's the writer saying here? The writer's saying that all of our goodness... All of the good things that we try to do, the things that we believe are tipping the scale in our favor, they're really not. They're really not. Because they don't measure up. They don't earn us any favor. They don't earn us any right standing with God. Martin Luther, the, middle, the reformer in the Middle Ages, said this, it's not tipping the scales that God wants us to do. He says what God wants to do is He wants an exchange. He wants to trade the life of Jesus the perfect life of Jesus for your life, your sinful life. He wants to trade um, con condemnation 
to being with God forever. He wants to exchange judgment for freedom. And Jesus says, God says, this is the life of Jesus. It's perfect. That's sinless. And I'm going to offer that to you, but you've got to give me your life. You've got to make this trade. He was condemned so I could be free. He was rejected so I could be accepted. He suffered so I could be given life. You see, Christianity is not a religious system. It's not a set of rules and regulations to follow so that you can tip the scales in your favor. Christianity is the greatest love story ever been told. Because Jesus didn't come to this earth just to create a feel-good story that we all hear and go, oh, how nice. He came to this earth for me and for you. He was conceived for me and for you. He's born of a virgin for me and for you. He suffered for me and for you. He died for me and for you. He's buried and rose again for me and for you. Over a decade ago, there was the worst train accident in California history. Two commuter trains collided. Two people were killed. Several hundred people were injured. And people were trapped on these trains for hours. One passenger's name was John Phipps, was trapped inside, and he'd had some injuries and he was bleeding, and he didn't know if he was going to make it. And after being there for hours and, and not knowing if he was going to be freed, he wanted to leave a message for his family. And so in his own blood, he wrote these words. He wrote words of love to his kids and to his wife. He wrote a message that said, I love you, Leslie. And that's really what the message of the gospel is. You see, God stepped into this world that was derailed by sin. And Jesus took the full impact of sin on himself. All of the sin of mankind was placed on him. So that he could write a message in his blood that says, I love you and this is for you today. And so the question for you is what will you do with this Jesus who was born of a virgin, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified and died and was buried? He's not going to coerce you into a decision. He's not going to twist your arm behind your back and force you into it. He's going to invite you to respond to his love. And you have a choice. And for some of you, that choice is today. To take a step beyond just believing, knowing some information about Jesus to say, yes, I get it. He did this for me. And he invites me to take a step of faith and receive this gift that he's offering to me. When I gave my wife a ring and asked her to marry me, um, I actually gave her a ring three different times, but that's another story for another day. Um, she had some options. She had some options. One option was to say, you know, that's a nice idea, but why don't we go watch a movie and we'll have a conversation about it later. That was certainly an option she could have considered. Another option was uh, to say, you know, I really like you and enjoy going out with you, but a preacher's wife is not the wife, life for me. And said, that's not where I want to go. And she could have said, do my parents know what she actually did say? And then eventually say yes, which I'm very grateful for. Very grateful. But, but God gives you the same choice today. He, he's not going to twist your arm. But he said, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is what he's done for you. God gave up what he loved the most, his one and only son. And he says, I want you to have a relationship with me in the best life possible. John writes it this way, the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. He says, here I am, Jesus is speaking. 
I'm standing at the door of your heart and I'm knocking. I'm knocking. And if you hear my voice and open, he said, I'm going to come in. I'm going to eat with you and you with me. And maybe this morning as you've heard me talking about Jesus, you've recognized that you're ready to take a step beyond just cognitive information about Jesus to believe that Jesus died for you. And he invites you into a relationship with him. And he invites you to receive that today. If you've taken that step, if you've invited Jesus into your life, I want to ask you another question. And that's the question of this. If you could remember that Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered, was crucified, and died for you, what would you do? What would you do? You see, beliefs impact our actions. What you believe impacts the way that you live. And if your actions don't reflect what you believe, you don't believe it. You don't believe it. But if I believe this, the core of my being, what would I do? What would I do? Would I worship Jesus more passionately? Would I spend time with Him daily? Would I serve others more generously? Would I speak about Him more boldly? If I believe, if I could remember that Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered, was crucified, and died for me, what would you do? Would you bow your heads with me as we close? As we do, I just want to invite you in prayer. If God's knocking on your heart today, and um, you've known about Jesus, you're aware of Jesus, but you've never chosen to open that door and say, I'm inviting Jesus in. Would you just quietly there in your own heart just say, you know, Lord Jesus, today I, I, I get it. You died for me. And I want to receive you into my life as my Savior and my Lord today. And if you've done that, what is Jesus calling you to do? How would believing this truth alter your life every single day? God, I thank you for your incredible love for us. Um, a love that when we sit with this and we reflect on it, I know for me, I can't fathom the amount of sacrifice that you extended for me. Giving up what you treasure the most, your one and only son. And so God, I pray for each one of us, no matter where we're at on our faith journey, if we're taking that step, if we're making that decision to open that door to Jesus, or if we've invited Him in, what would it look like to live in this belief, to live in this reality every day? God, I thank You so much for Your love. And I thank You so much for Jesus. And may our lives reflect who He is in our lives every single day. In Your name we pray. Amen.
This next song is a good answer to I would. Let's stand as we sing, Take the World. <laughs> 